Hi, I'm Sean Hayden, and this is 101 Stage Adaptations. Welcome to 101 Stage Adaptations. I'm your host, Melissa Schmitz. I'm a theater artist and arts administrator, and I wrote my first stage adaptation when I was 22. Now I'm interviewing playwrights about their own adaptations, their creative process, and how they make it all work. What is up, 101 Stage Adaptations listeners? If you are new here, welcome. If you have been here before, thank you for coming back. I love bringing these interviews to you. And if you would like to support the show, you can give it a five-star rating, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share it with your friends, and you can even buy me a coffee at the link in the show notes. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different because we're talking to a fellow theater podcaster who I am a big fan of, and his podcast has everything, narrative, reenactments, interviews, drama, and useful information everyone can use to help with their mental health. And he's going to tell us how he crafted his show. Sean Hayden is the CEO of Haywood Productions, LLC. As a professional actor, Sean has appeared in two Broadway national tours and in plays and musicals in theaters across the country. He is a proud union member of Actors' Equity Association. He is currently working with theater departments and higher education institutions to better support the mental health of their students. As a mental health advocate, Sean has provided thought leadership on how employers can better support the mental health of their employees. His op-ed on men and mental health appeared in the Economic Times. Sean is also a licensed attorney who has his own law practice in Manhattan. Sean resides in New York City and upstate New York with his husband, a screenwriter. Please welcome to the show, Sean Hayden. Hello. Hello, Melissa. I'm so happy to be with you here today. I am so happy you're here. Oh my gosh. So let's just get right into it. I ask everybody the same question when they come on, and that is, uh, what is your first theater memory? My first theater memory is, well, there's two. Uh, I've told the story before of in the first grade, I was not picked for the Christmas play. Um, There were no auditions. The teacher just picked who was going to be in it. And I thought, well, that's not democratic. And I went up to her and said, I want to be in this. I'm six years old. I want to be in the, in the play. And so she gave, she gave me the last half of the last line. So my first lines on the stage were like mother told us to. And I I think the first part of the line was we went to bed or something like that. Um, The second is really my father took me, I lived in a small town in Florida And we didn't really have theater, but there would be a traveling Shakespeare troupe that would come and set up Shakespeare in the high school gymnasium. And this is before the internet. My father and I would read the plot synopsis in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, Or maybe it was the world book. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, And I remember, I think we went to see Othello. Othello. Um, And that was my first experience in the theater uh, which is a really sweet memory to think about my dad in the small town working class mm-hmm. for some reason taking me to see that and us trying to figure out what Shakespeare was all about. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. And then how did you decide to make a career in theater and what did that path look like for you? Well, my path was a path filled with a lot of no's, like a lot of people. Yeah. You know, um, I was raised in a very fundamentalist evangelical Baptist uh, religion. So I was told that I was not allowed to be an actor because 
the, the and verbatim the words were acting was of the devil. Mm. Um, so it wasn't a path for me. Um, and so I had to kind of forge that path. Fortunately, I, you know, as you know, I'm a lawyer and an actor. And fortunately, I enjoyed law. I wanted to be a lawyer. I also wanted to be an actor. I didn't want any restrictions on me. So mm. I had to find that path. Um, you know, I started acting in law school. My grades actually went up while I'm in law school, Wow, which was an unconventional path. Yeah. And then I got my equity card working as while I was working as a lawyer uh, for a couple of firms in Dallas, Texas. I got my equity card mm. in Dallas. And then eventually moved to New York um, to try to be a New York working actor. And that was my path. Oh, my gosh. How did you have time to be an actor while in law school? I have just always worked full steam to mm. careers. You know, it's okay. something that people don't fully understand. So when I'm yeah. doing a show, I'm, I can't go out partying with the cast and usually the role is so demanding. I can't do it anyway, but right. at night I'm working on my real estate files. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a real estate lawyer. Um, so the, I, I just, I, I don't know how I did it, but obviously something in law school, the release and the joy of that was helped me to, you know, f also funnel positive energy into studying for law, you know? Oh, that's so interesting. My undergraduate advisor was always like, theater major is a great prerequisite <laughs> for law school. <laughs> but you sort of <clears throat> did them simultaneously. <laughs> I did. You know, I, I people always say that. And I think what they're thinking of is like trial lawyers. And I was only briefly a litigation lawyer when I was working in, in Texas. I'm not now and haven't been for some time. But it's the investigative nature you know, yeah. is the analytical skills that I talk a lot about in the podcast, you know, particularly what I did in that role, mm -hmm. in any role. That's what always has, has attracted me. And so that's something I have to do with any file, you know, yes. um, anytime I'm representing a client um, is putting analytical, deductive reasoning. We're, we're taught in law school, investigation, which you hear all through this podcast. So there, there's a lot of intersection it's where the emotion takes, it kind of goes on divergent paths because mm -hmm. we try to keep the emotion out of law Yeah. Uh, versus with acting, we have to do both. Right. We have to have the analytical and the facts and the investigation and merge it with the emotions and the empathy. That's right. Okay. So let's, let's get right into it. Tell us about your podcast, Stage Combat, and two seasons have been released. And so you can reveal as much or as little as you want on this show for people who may or may not have already listened. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to do spoilers. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to want. talk about it's, it, right? Yeah. yeah. It's your show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so stage combat, a mental health story is the story dramatized serialized style um, over the course of two seasons back to back of what happened when I suffered a mental health crisis while working at one of the most powerful theaters in the country. And it's a theater called the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut. Um, it's a theater that has imported 21 productions to Broadway. And it's what we call, you know, there's this upper echelon set of theaters that are really one step from Broadway. They, they import a lot of things over. Um, I was hired to play Billy's dad in a production of Billy Elliot, the musical. Mm -hmm. And it was the dream job of my life. Things were going uh, uh, just amazingly well. And unfortunately, there were safety issues that largely centered around another cast member. And 
um, what the podcast shows is how the incidents with this cast member and the failure of my employer to address the issues really built up in my mind and created an environment where I did not feel safe. And I eventually collapsed during a live performance. I was dragged off the stage and I was sobbing uncontrollably in the wings. And then two weeks later, I was fired by that theater. So we tell the story of, in season one, how the mental health crisis happened. We open with my body on the ground, sort of like the opening of Sunset Boulevard, but it's a stage floor, not a, a swimming pool. Yeah. And we work our way back to show how that happened, because I wanted to show how a mental health crisis happens. Mm -hmm. And then the second season shows you, over a three-year period, the fallout from that mental health crisis. Um, um, with my employer, with my health and um, my my road to recovery, because the damage that was done by that experience was very significant to my health. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, as you know, I'm a huge fan of the show. I've listened to every single episode. And I think everyone in the theater industry needs to listen to this podcast and develop a protocol for themselves as individuals. And uh, company leadership needs to develop protocol and resources for handling these kinds of situations and supporting their uh, employees and artists during, you know, issues that may come up around mental health and, and helping in ways that doesn't cause further harm. Right. Um, so thank you so much for putting this out there. Well, thank you for vocalizing that. I mean, that's what we have to vocalize, yeah. you know, that was, the reason I created the podcast, because we don't talk about this in the theater industry, right. you know, mental health is swept under the rug and God forbid you have a crisis, you're penalized for it yeah. or it's just ignored, which is what we show in the podcast. Right. So we have to have this conversation because we haven't even broken the surface yet. We're trying to do that with, with stage combat, the podcast, but you know, again, it takes people like you, anybody who has a platform to say, hey, we need to be talking about this because our industry is severely broken. Yeah. And, you know, it's not hyperbole to say that when it comes to mental health, literally people's lives are at stake. It's true. Oh, my gosh. And you have so many. So you have your narrative part, but you also have reenactments and then you have um, mental health experts on that sort of debrief the episodes afterward and i and i love that and i also love when patrick hines is on i feel like he's everyone's inner monologue <laughs> like what <laughs> what it's so great and you two are such a great duo together because you are so calm and diplomatic and a lawyer and he's just like energetic and sassy and it's like what is going on it's yeah i'm like the anderson cooper to his uh andy yes, cohen right it's yeah. true it's true <laughs> oh my gosh i want commentary from him after every episode just like Okay, uh. what? How did this? <laughs> what's going on? Um, I also yeah. want to give a shout out to my friend Grace, who alerted me about your podcast over the summer. In which case, I binged it. Oh, you found out about it from your friend Grace? <laughs> yes, yes. So thank well, you, Grace. <laughs> well, I'm, I got to give a shout out to Grace too because we wouldn't be having this conversation. So thank you, Grace. That's right. At what point, Sean, did you decide that you needed to tell this story? And was your original intention? to write it as a form of personal catharsis or, or maybe as a sort of cautionary tale to help others who might be experiencing the same thing? No, the original intention was not catharsis, although it, it had that effect. And we talk about that. Um, it was, and we tell this in the finale episode, uh, 
you know, it was, and this spoiler alert, yep. Um, you know, the, the story of what happened to me, the good speed resulted in, you know, a claim filed by my union that we prevailed on. It resulted in a lawsuit. Um, but it was the realization that how do I help make change in the industry and make sure that this doesn't happen to somebody else? Yeah. Because it, you know, this happened to me sitting in the ultimate seat of privilege. Yeah. You know, I'm the white guy who also, you know, has a certain education and legal skills. Mm-hmm. And what happened to me was done so brazenly. Yeah. So what does that say? And it never occurred to me not to speak up for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always doing that dance. But if I need something, particularly as a lead, to do my job. So, you know, the realization then, what does that say about what's happening to people who are in marginalized or who are minorities, who are who who are implicitly and explicitly told not to speak up or you're going to have this 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 particular label put on you. So that was the impetus of doing the podcast. Um, and so I just got started writing. Hmm. How did you decide that the true crime narrative was going to be the framing device that fit best to tell this story? Well, we told this in the finale. I started when I started writing it um, and it was not going well because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a writer. I'm an actor. So my my job has always been to interpret the words of other writers. Mm-hmm. My husband is a writer. So he was very good as a mentor and my mother-in-law is a writer. Yeah. Um, so I was fortunate to be, okay, um, I have two mentors that can guide me in this. Um, and I started and I was writing it sort of like it was a book. Mm-hmm. And that was not going well. And so my husband said, just write the story that you hear in your head. Mm. And so, you know, I heard the mental health story, but also basically this is an HR story, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's an HR story from hell. <laughs> but when I thought of it in terms of like corporate intrigue, you know, like I'd heard like a podcast and I listened to a lot of podcasts, mm-hmm. like I'd heard a podcast about Enron, you know, and when I thought of it in terms, how do we dramatize you know, you see sometimes when you see these movies and it's about the Nike shoe or something like that, it doesn't sound very interesting, but how do we dramatize it? And I haven't seen that movie. Maybe it's not interesting. But when I thought of it in those terms, then it sort of came together as a true crime podcast. Mm. But I was also influenced by Fremoir a little bit, the way we open Mm -hmm. um, the first episode. Um, There was a 2009 film called Duplicity with Julia Roberts that I was Mm -hmm. in. That was about feuding pharmaceutical companies. So um, all of that sort of came together. And then also just kind of, this is in the world of the theater. So let's blow it up. Let's be very theatrical. Let's go over the top. We could always pull it back. Um, Mm -hmm. And so those factors all kind of came together and created what is what we called it's a mental health story told like a true crime podcast set in the backstabbing world of the theater industry. <laughs> the backstabbing, oh my gosh. Yeah. At, at actually, point, Patrick, um, Patrick Hines came up with that take. <laughs> of course he did. He did. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I, as you were writing this, at what point did you decide that the right form for this to manifest was a podcast that people would listen to and not a, a written piece for people to read? 
Well, it never occurred to me for it to be a written piece because I'm not a writer, but I do okay. listen to a lot of podcasts, you know, and I'd listen to true crime podcasts. Um, and I'd listen to some where there are like reenactments. And I thought, oh, I can do that. I mean, that's something, I mean, I always kind of thought of it like, what if it's, it, it's almost like listening to a TV show, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like listening to a television show. The, what did the audio, you know, and like, 50 years ago, our grandparents would listen to radio shows. So sometimes right. that's what it was. Well, I thought, well, I can do that. I can just tell what I felt, what I saw, and what people said. Mm-hmm. And so when I thought of it in those terms, that was something I was able to do. You know, And a lot of it was trial and error, and I got better. And season two was a lot easier to write than season one because I learned so much. Um, yeah. But yeah. I love that. All right. So- Walk me through the writing process because it's very layered. <laughs> and yeah. so you have you have a story that you're telling where you're like a sort of enlightened narrator and it's told in first person because it's your story. But sometimes yeah. you as the narrator, um, you're experiencing the action in real time. And then yeah. other times you have this omniscience of knowing all the details now that you didn't know back then. And then you have reenactments. Like how did you even begin to script <laughs> this story? Yeah. Yeah. So the interesting thing about stage combat is that there are two parallel stories going on. Mm -hmm. So, and we clue the audience in on this, I believe around episode six or seven, six, I think it's right before Chad's Revenge. There's a timeline that I know nothing about for two years after I leave the show. Yeah. And then there's the timeline that I know about in, in real time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in discussion with, I guess we'll call it my writing mentors, <laughs> my yeah. family, yeah. you know, the decision was made was, will we debate it? Do we go chronologically? Mm-hmm. Um, and we only find out about the stuff two years later, or do we tell it in real time? And I slip into in between different voices. And the decision was made that a lot of the most inflammatory, enraging stuff is, is what's happening behind the scenes mm-hmm. that I don't know about. I'll call it like the Enron story, but it's you know what's happening with management. It's an HR story. Yeah. So that decision was made, <clears throat> and then you know from why we were doing that, then we had to make the decision about. How much editorializing do we do? And initially, I was doing too much because my husband told me, you know, I think you just need to trust the story. Mm. What happened is bad enough. Like, I felt like I needed to still justify it, which is kind of what we do when we undergo abuse. Like, we're still not convinced people will believe that something really bad happened to us. Yeah. And so we found that if we just kind of told the facts, you know, and just said what people said, we would let the audience put it together. Mm-hmm. And when you say editorializing, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So there were some initial drafts where, um, you know, I would have Rachel say something like, um, a total of zero people are surprised he would be spinning out because I called him. And then as the narrator, I would comment on that, why that was bad. And we mm. realized that didn't make any sense. Okay, It's like, just tell the story. So, you know, what we're doing we're quoting the other component of this is that, you know, we obtained legally the HR documents mm-hmm. uh, on my file. And so what we're doing, we're, we're dramatizing the Goodspeed's own documents. Yeah. So, and, and we realized once we trusted the story and just stepped back from it, occasionally we'll, we'll add one little line where we editor, editorialize a little bit, mm-hmm. but we drastically changed. And again, it was just trial and error and realizing, oh, this is much stronger just to let the people speak for themselves. Mm. 
I love that. Um, so there are a lot of elements in crafting the crafting of this podcast, and it has many layers as we just talked about. And it's very complex in terms of the reveals and the picking up of clues that you do and then solving the mystery. How did you decide how the story would unfold and when you would insert the dramatizations? Well, the dramatizations with, we have people, we have voiceovers. Mm -hmm. So we have people playing real people. And so, you know, that was always a part of it. Um, we get a little more ambitious into season two where the scenes will be longer, you know, and we just wanted to be, that was just, just trying to push the envelope of what the podcast could be, particularly the finale episode. You know, we have a whole mediation session that we dramatize, you know, and we had really good voice actors, you know, so that, that told us we could do more than what we initially thought we could do. So, I mean, the idea was that, you know, I would always be telling the story, but we would just have these people kind of slip in and slip out. And sometimes it may just be one line. Um, in terms of reenactments, you know, there's only two times where we sort of, we do a lot of replays where we're replaying something that the audience has already heard, where I'm getting a realization. And mm -hmm. so it's like you hear the tape rewinding. And so the audience will say, I heard that. There's two times where we actually reenact something you hadn't heard yet. And so one was when the stage manager sends a certain memo out about me. Mm -hmm. That's in season one. And the other was, you know, there's my final night where there's a big catastrophic event that happens with this other actor who we call Chad. Mm -hmm. And when I finally get the documents, we reenact what was going on backstage based upon those documents. Mm. So we, we reenacted at that point because I was learning it as Sean, the person at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Did you write the entire story first and then cut it into episodes or did you write each episode individually? Well, what I did was I initially, I, I wrote the titles. Mm. I, I, I saw it in episodes and I wrote the titles and I knew what timeline it would encompass. Mm. And then from there, I started from the beginning and wrote the episodes. And then once we wrote them, we would realize, well, this episode is really small, so let's combine it with this, or this episode, this mini episode needs to be told with this episode. So we would make some adjustments like that, but it was written episode by episode. Awesome. How long did it take you to craft the whole thing in terms of the writing of it? Um, and did you write everything before you began recording? And then how mm. long did the production and editing take? Well, the writing of a to have a working script to go to recording, that took about six months, but we were always rewriting mm -hmm. because you would go into the studio and, and you would realize what wasn't working or you would hear it and realize it, what wasn't working. Um, and then particularly the finale episode was completely rewritten because things had changed. Yeah. You know, We wrote that in the fall of last year and then there was a big jump in my mental health improvement and there were new actions happening with the good speed, you know? Mm. So that was in April of 2023 and we released the second series this summer. So it was very recent. Yeah. The production of it, it took 10 months oh, working wow. every day to produce those 20 episodes. Mm. So there was a tremendous amount of labor hours that, yeah. that went into it. Yeah. And a lot of, 
you know, it's like anything, crafting a show or a play, you know, we never just recorded something and we were done. We yeah. would listen to it repeatedly and I would, and I would be like, this writing's not right, or I'm not delivering this right, or I don't have the music right. And we would have to go back and try different things. Um, so we were, and then on top of that, you know, we had to be very meticulous, right? right? We were telling a story about a very powerful organization. So we had mm -hmm. a lot of legal layers that we went through um, right. with footnoting and with a defamation attorney and then multiple reviews on that. So it, you add that on top of what it would take just to do a normal podcast and you could see how that, that time period really expands out and, and takes longer than you think it would. Oh my gosh. This is why I do an interview podcast, which is only 10, only <laughs> 10 hours <laughs> per yeah. interview. <laughs> but like, yeah, I, it's it's bonkers that I chose to do never having done a podcast the most difficult form which is scripted nonfiction yes you know it is, but it, it is was the most it, time consuming. but it was the thing yeah it was the thing I understood because to me it was a theater story it's mm. telling a story it's storytelling you know yeah it just comes with a lot of um you know technical requirements and editing and design and absolutely. Oh my gosh. I, I have to laugh because when you were talking about listening to the playback and, and rewriting, how, how did you know? Cause you're the, you're the writer and the narrator. So how did you yeah. know when the writing needed to be needed to be fixed or when your performance was lacking and you needed to fit like, what, what, how did you know where the problem was when you were like, this isn't working? Well, there are two ways. Um, I always sort of had a series of reviews through my husband <laughs> and then you know, he would give me notes and I would redo it. And then, excuse me, it would ultimately go to my mother-in-law, Carol. Okay. And then, you know, Carol knows less about the theater industry than we do. So if something wasn't clear to her or if she thought, you know, you're sounding too indulgent or whiny, you know, or mm. we're not following this. So those are good barometers. From listening to it, you just, you feel something in your, in your gut. You feel it. You feel yeah. it where I'm, I'm listening to it, but my attention's doing this or something mm. feels icky. Mm. You just feel it. And I learned to trust that and not to just accept it. It'll probably be okay. No, if I'm feeling that, that means I need to get to the root of what the problem is. Yeah. And sometimes it wouldn't be really apparent until you look at it and it's like, oh, I know what it is. I'm overstating it. Or this music is wrong. Or the delivery's not quick enough. You know, mm -hmm. And it's already a really slow podcast. We did that by design, but- so it would be a lot of factors like that. Mm, that's great advice. Was this your first piece of creative writing? You keep claiming you're not a writer, but you have written this not whole a, thing. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, which is which is bonkers because um, it could have gone horribly wrong. Um, and and I think, <laughs> I mean, I think knowing that I always had two people I respected to say, yeah. "Is this working?" And each time something's working, then it gives you more confidence. You're like, oh, yeah. okay. I know how to tell this story. Just right. And I just had to trust myself and just be simple, simplify, simplify. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Oh, my gosh. And was it ultimately cathartic? I mean, I think you've answered this already, but having it be ultimately cathartic to write or was it re-traumatizing? Because you spent months and months like... Yeah. writing this story and having to having to live with the repercussions of it but then having to like write it all out. Yeah, it was both. It was both. 
So it was traumatizing because at the same time this is going on, for a good part of the time, the lawsuit was still going on. So yeah. you heard, you hear some of this in the podcast, how that affects me. Cause it was really, it was just nasty. You know, yeah. it was just really horrible. And then when you would write this and then you would start connecting the dots. So you're getting more knowledge than you had before. Yeah. Because you're really diving into these documents from the, from my employer. I knew every word of every page of these documents. And so mm-hmm. when you would connect the dots, you would start to say, Oh, it, it's worse than I knew, God. or it's it seems more cruel than I knew. Yeah, you know, and then I would have to go to my therapist and 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 sort of debrief myself that I had this new re- realization, or you know, I was this bad off, and it doesn't seem like anyone cared. Mm. And then the performance aspect, you know, you you have to kind of relive that, right? And then you'd walk out of a three hour session and just feel like you got run over by a truck. Mm. So that was traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, Melissa, it was cathartic. After like doing a three-hour session, like what tools did you develop to like shake that off? Well, you know, it's so funny about I about mental health. It, it, sometimes we're not even aware of, oh, something's really affecting me and maybe I need to address it. Yes. <laughs> you know, and you just let it go. I yes. mean, that's and this is become as you become more aware about your own your own mind your own makeup your own mental health i've gotten much better about this and so you know it, a lot of it was you know my therapist my doctor um i was working with a massage therapist who uses binaural beats mm. um, on a regular basis and it would to help just try to shed some of this and then at the same time you're trying to create this sort of keep the CEO sort of mind because you are the director, the producer for Haywood Productions mm-hmm. of the project. So it, it's a lot to juggle. I got better with it. And I think I got better with it, handling it because of the, th- the cathartic effect of the podcast. You know, it was, I've always said it's like recreating a crime scene. Yeah. And when you, when you recreate the trauma, you take away the power of the trauma, you right. know, you record a story that people told me was not happening. Mm. That people tried to ignore or tried to yeah. silence. So there was a lot of power from that. Mm-hmm. And it did feel like in the sense that, okay, I've recorded these episodes. They exist. What happened to me is real. The story is real. Yeah. And it's recorded and it's in a Dropbox and you can't take that away from me. Mm-hmm. So that ultimately had a tremendous cathartic effect. It wasn't what... It wasn't the effect my doctor and I expected. Mm. Looking back at it, it's, it makes absolute sense. But it wasn't something like, Sean, you need to do this, and this will help you out of your, largely out of your panic disorder, which is what it did. Mm. That's great. Why was it important to you to have a debriefing interview with a mental health expert after each episode, after you delivered the narrative portion of, of the story? Well, it was very important to me, and you hear this in the finale episode, I never wanted to do a podcast that was just about me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to just sit and tell my story and that's it. I wanted it, my story to open up a broader conversation about an industry that's very broken when it comes to the way we view actors and particularly their mental health. So my hope was that a mental health professional should 
would not only broaden that conversation, but it would specifically shine a spotlight on different issues that you heard in the episode. So it's almost like watching a football game and then you hear the halftime, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, commentary, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, let's talk about what consent is. And we heard me saying I don't consent in this. Let's talk about, you know, um, gaslighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let, let's talk about panic attacks. Let's talk about uh, depersonalization. Um, so, and at, it, it was funny. It was like, I wasn't even sure it would work. And then when I finally heard a full episode with one, I was, I was like, okay, this, this feels powerful to me. And it, it feels bigger than just my story. Yeah. Which is what I always wanted stage combat to be. Yeah. Hmm. Did being a lawyer encourage you or give you pause in terms of bringing this story forward to the public? <laughs> Both. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it gave me pause because anytime you're going up against a powerful organization, yeah, are they going to strike back? You know, which is why then again, being a lawyer gave me the tools to say I have to be meticulous with this, which you would want to be with any podcast, right? But I have to go over and beyond. So this yeah. is why our scripts were footnoted. We would footnote the script, noting which Goodspeed document at what time and and the mm. and the date and stamp and. Um, you, you know, there were conversations. Who were the witnesses to it? So, and then it went through multiple reviews with a with a media lawyer. But the other part of you know being a lawyer, you know, I I'm not a litigation lawyer, mm-hmm. but I do consider myself as any lawyer is. I'm there to zealously represent and advocate for my clients. If I can't stand up for myself, who can I stand up for? Mm. You know, and this was a story where. I was silenced. Yeah. That's not okay. It's not okay for any actor. So, you know, I would, I would say that's just who I am as a person, but mm-hmm. particularly being an attorney gave me that extra fight to stand up for myself and to hopefully mm-hmm. stand up for other people. Yeah. Do you think that the good speed uh, forgot that you were an attorney <laughs> when they <laughs> fired you? <laughs> didn't didn't think that anything would come of it. Um. Well, everyone at the Good Speed was fully aware I, I I'm an attorney, you know, and I think that's what makes the story of stage combat. I mean, the word we hear from actors is is horrifying. Yeah, and it comes back to if you did this to the white guy who is a lawyer, then what else is going on in the industry? Right. You know. It, you know, I have to wonder. Did you think that because I was. I mean, you heard in the podcast how much I was suffering backstage. I right. could barely breathe. Mm-hmm. Did you did you think that, oh, he's crazy, he'll never do anything? Right. You know? You know, and so all of these people told a narrative for three and a half years. Did they think I would never fight back? Mm. You know? Um, I don't know. You would have to ask them that. Right. Um Yeah, I think that's just what makes the story remarkable and that at some point because i held my i was silent for a long time yeah i was silent for three and a half years i never told the story of what happened while plenty of other narratives were put out there that was just you know they were false narratives right yeah Mm. so i recently talked with um playwright michael susco uh and and we were talking about writing autobiographical solo shows 
and the need for many writers to write things exactly as they happened and preserving all the details and accuracy over crafting a, a narrative and in dramatic form. Um, mm -hmm. And in your case, being a lawyer and your story takes the form of a true crime podcast, obviously accuracy, accuracy is key, but how mm -hmm. did you discern what you would cut and trim to keep the narrative on track and accurate and compelling? Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of structure, what I did is I, you know, I read the hero's journey. Now, let me also say, mm -hmm. I don't think I'm a hero. Okay. But I read <laughs> well, the hero's journey, you know? We, we agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I appreciate that. But anyway, but, and let me tell you, when I read that, it gave me a lot of clarity as to the things that happened and sort of where they fit into anyone's journey. Yeah. Because there was, you know, me getting this audition and refusing the call and didn't think I was right. And then going into the new strange world mm -hmm. and looking for allies and shapeshifters and being cast out of the strange world and yep. having the elixir and how do I share it? And so, you know, reading all those things, it was like, well, that's all happened in my story. Mm -hmm. So it gave me structure. Yeah. And I, I use that to say, this is how we, we craft the narrative. This is the through line. But I didn't have to create anything new or that wasn't accurate. They were all there in my story. Mm -hmm. It just allowed me to 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 tell the facts in it, it helped me craft the structure. Yeah. You know. But I found that so fascinating that it was almost like a form of therapy. Mm -hmm. To read that journey, it's like, yeah. I did that and I did that and that happened and that person did that. And I thought that was an ally and they weren't. And, mm. and then I came out with this new knowledge and how do I share it? It was like, it was all there. Mm. And so if I just took that journey and how do I put that journey into 20 episodes, that what really helped me. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a great thing for anyone writing any piece of work, right? Mm -hmm. You know, certainly screenwriters go to it. Um, yeah. So, and I actually looked at the the Vogel version of the hero's journey. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. So, by the time this episode, our conversation airs, uh, your conversation with your husband and mother in law will have aired, <laughs> and both of those people are writers. And I so needed to hear the part where one of them says, "So many people think that you're supposed to come out." that it's all supposed to come out right the first time and that the blank page is the biggest hurdle to overcome. And I'm like, yes. Oh my God. Um, what was the biggest hurdle you had to overcome in this writing process? And how did your husband and mother-in-law help and encourage you along the way? Well, you heard um, that episode where I took out our emails between me and my husband and the first notes I got. And I was just like, I'm in over my head. Yeah. I can't do this. You know, and it became trying to think of a here, and you heard this in the finale episode. I said, come on, Sean, just listen to the story you hear in your head. And that's literally what I did. I heard the story. I heard, I, I heard the music. I heard the podcast. And I was like, that's what, now how do I write that down? You know, which mm -hmm. is very different than sitting down as a writer with, you know, a lot of flourishes and metaphors and things like that. It was just a yeah. very more simple kind of journalistic sort of approach, but also saying, and this made me feel this way. But they were just also, they they were very encouraging. And they would tell me when something worked. 
I think that's so important. My husband, you know, is a screenwriter and I'll give him notes and he'll also say, well, can you tell me what you did like? Because we need to hear that to know, we need to know what's working. And so when they would tell me what was working, that was a lot of ammunition because it was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I need to keep going in that direction. Or maybe I need to redo this other section where I I didn't do that sort of thing. So that was very helpful. That's great. So you are an attorney. And you hired a defamation attorney to review and approve your writing for the podcast. When someone writes about real people and events, what is the realm of free game legally? Well, I'm not a defamation attorney, so I'm not going to go into the legal specifics. But essentially, it's about truth. Mm -hmm. Is the story that you're telling truthful? And this was my story, you know? Um, So... It was very important that everything was backed up, and like I said, the the worst the worst parts of this story came from the Goodspeed's own documents. You know, yeah. we obtained these documents in a legal proceeding where we asked under a legal procedure to give us the documents that pertain to everything with Sean at the Goodspeed and mm-hmm. all the other incidents, and they said these are those documents. You know. <laughs> And so, okay, you, if you're saying this is the documents you have, then we mm-hmm. crafted the narrative from that because, you know, theaters document a lot of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So I've been dying to ask this question because I ask it when I listen to every episode of the podcast. <laughs> what What is Chad's deal? Okay. Like this guy <laughs> is obsessed with you and he starts to dress like you and you're keeping things professional. And when you start to advocate for your own safety with the fight choreography, he, he turns on you and starts reporting you with lies and making things up and he continues to harass you. Okay. Like why is he doing this? Like, what is the end game? Did any of the mental health experts <laughs> offer you any like insight or explanation for why a person would behave this way? Off camera. <laughs> <laughs> so look, um, I have been very clear about this. Look, I'm not a psychologist. Um, do I have some ideas about this particular man? Mm-hmm. Yes, but I'm not going to say what they are. I think our audience is pretty smart. All I can do is tell you what I saw, right? Mm-hmm. What I saw was someone who had an obsession, which I was f- far deeper than I even knew till I got the documents, Yeah, who had no empathy <laughs> yeah. to even when I had the air knocked out of me and was relentless, relentless mm-hmm. in some it, what appears to be this this revenge to try to to get me fired and it worked you know yeah. so can a person say okay what do those traits what kind of person is that that's what you that's what the listener can do all i can say is this is what i saw mm-hmm. this is what's in the documents and i found it very disturbing and uncomfortable and looking back knowing what was happening and how extreme it was, I find it terrifying, mm-hmm. you know? And I said this in the podcast, what would have been next right? if I had not been fired, you know? And you heard a scene where I'm on a massage table and I'm with these binaural beats and I'm picturing police cars. It was, you know, it was, mm-hmm. that was the fear 
you know, you talk about be, being re-traumatized, mm-hmm. you know, it was like getting the documents and realizing, oh, it was 10 times worse than I knew at the time, Ugh. you know? So my brain having to catch up with that and nobody cared. No one right. appeared to care, you know? So that's a lot of different. So, so I don't know. Um, and be, you know, and I still don't know, you know, are there things we don't know? Is there some other element, some avenue of influence that this man had? Possibly, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the questions that everyone asked because what was happening defied logic. Right. You know, I, people that, you know, I'm, I think I'm a pretty reasonable professional person. Right. You know, um, so I, I think that possibly there's some element in the story of stage combat that we may never know, mm-hmm. you know, because the indulgence of this young man by management just doesn't make sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's so strange and, and like, just want to like reiterate that he's making up lies about you. And yeah. they know he's making up lies about you. And yeah. yet you were the one that got fired. Like, yeah. What? And I also think it's completely plausible that there is no additional element. And it was just that I was, I've said this, in the scheme of things, the bigger threat to management in the sense that I was the one saying I didn't feel safe in a very professional way. And I was the one with a medical issue. Mm-hmm. I was the one who collapsed and that was, you know, not being acknowledged. I was the one who could barely breathe on stage. I was the one who was having to stop the fight call- rehearsals because I couldn't breathe sometimes and take deep breaths. So mm-hmm. um, it's plausible that that was enough that like we just need, we don't want to deal with this situation and mm-hmm. is the easier one to, you know, it's possible they just thought, what is the worst of the two evils? Mm. You know? That's not what the situation was. It's not like there's one side and there's another side. It's very clear. I mean, right. you know, it's very clear what I was what I was going through. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, is it possible that management just says, "Nah, actors, we don't want to deal with it. Let's get the, let's get rid of the one that is possibly more of a liability to us." That's possible. Right. right. Yeah. We can't have him collapsing on stage every night. <laughs> Well, and when is he going to stop having a medical issue because, right. you know, they refuse to do anything about it? I mean, it was literally ignored. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Putting your attorney hat on again. My attorney hat. <laughs> yes. What is it? I'm sure you ha- you have your actor hat and your attorney hat. <laughs> what, uh, what does it say to you that in a mediation session with the Goodspeed that they were less interested in, like, refuting or negotiating the case against them and more concerned about killing this podcast that was going to come out. Um, and, and also refusing to give comment to be a part of your podcast after multiple invitations. What do you think it says? I think, I think it says that uh, there's, there's no case for them. (laughs) I think that's what it says. I mean, the documents are bad. Yeah. It's not a good look. Yeah. You know? And um, um so I think that's your answer. Mm-hmm. Um I, and I just think no one ever dreamed that I would stand up for myself. I think I you know, and I think this is the bad thing about mental health. We just discard someone and say, they're crazy. I mean, right. that's the slur we use. Right. They're crazy. They they'll they'll I mean they'll they'll never stand up. No one dreamed I would stand up for myself. And again, again, 
the privileged white guy with the legal skills. That's what's bizarre. Right. No one dreamed. What did you think I was going to do? That I was just going to go on with the rest of my life after $24,000 in medical bills from what happened and not ever speak up for myself? So, you know, so that's that. Why they haven't spoken up, you know, I, I, my feeling is, I don't know this. This is purely speculation. Yeah. I think they've been able to remain under the radar a bit by not putting out a statement because it would be picked up by the press, mm-hmm. you know, and we, you know, we hired three teams of publicists for stage combat mm. over the two seasons. And we could not get the mainstream theater press to cover a podcast that has never been done like this before involving a theater that has imported 21 productions to Broadway. And a podcast is about really harmful practices in the theater industry that people and actors really care about. Yeah. So I think that that's probably your answer that my speculation is the advice was don't put out a statement. It would draw attention to it. Mm. Yeah. Have they offered you any kind of apology? Has it, has anybody, maybe not like as a company, but anybody in leadership there, has anybody reached out to you at all? And offered no. any sort of empathy or apology or anything? No, not at all. I Oof. heard from someone in the music department who's no longer there. Mm-hmm. He emailed me and said, I listened to the podcast and I had no idea what you were going through. Mm. And I appreciated that. Yeah. And um, that's the only person. Mm-hmm. You know, I met very nice people at the Good Speed, you know despite the horrible things we tell about what happened, mm-hmm. you know, the music department, the costume department, the props department, the box office, these were very nice, generous people. The problems that I had were with that stage management department and the management. Mm-hmm. That's where the problems were. And with one cast member. Right. Yeah. Mm. Let's go back to, uh, the lack of press that this podcast has gotten because it's like, it's a huge hit and, and you hear from people all over the country, all over the world who've yeah. had similar experiences. So this mm-hmm. is like a pervasive systemic issue in the yes. industry. Um, and you're revealing, you're revealing these problems like through your experience with one particular company, but this is sort of, like I said, an industry wide, problem um what what is up with these news organizations that don't that don't want to cover first of all like a very interesting compelling podcast but also a huge story that is just like ready to erupt if your if your podcast hasn't erupted it already yeah i think you have to ask yourself um you know are these news organizations or are they there to protect certain institutions Right. Are they there to protect institutions from which they have relationships or revenue from, mm-hmm. you know, with American theater magazine, we had an informal interview and we actually offered, we will give you the good speed documents to give you confidence in the story. Mm-hmm. And they did not take it up. So you have to ask yourself when that's, you know, how is it that you are covering every opening of this theater Right. You know, you're covering their production of summer stock or whatever they're doing. I've seen other articles about mental health. I've seen articles where 
there's some harmful practice in some theater in the Midwest that probably doesn't advertise with you. Mm-hmm. So these are the questions you have to ask, you know, who are you there for? You know, these, mm-hmm. these, you know, there's like four, you know, these media organizations. It's incredibly disappointing because I can tell you that the podcast is changing lives. It's helping people. Yes. It's the people that write to me every day mm-hmm. that say, you know, I feel seen. I feel validated. I thought I was the only one. Mm-hmm. After the finale episode, we had so many people write us and said, now I have made a decision after hearing the podcast and listening to the mental health professionals that I don't have to live with this pain alone. I've made mm-hmm. an appointment with a therapist or I called my therapist who I haven't seen in five years. Like you, the podcast has made me realize that. So mm. the, the what's unfortunate is take me out of it. You know, I, I don't care about, you know, recognizing me. The fact is the podcast is helping actors, thousands of actors, mm-hmm. and these press organizations could be helping other actors and also bringing this conversation to light. Cause like I said, look, we're not going to stop. It's just under the surface right now, even with the podcast being a success, mm-hmm. but there is no big conversation about mental health and the harmful practices that are going on in our theaters. Now right. we are already seeing some movement with drama programs uh, be- because of the podcast. Uh, next week, I am going to Boston Conservatory at Berkeley, which is in Boston, mm-hmm. because one of the students heard the podcast and took it to uh, an instructor who took it to another instructor. And there's a new division head. And they reached out and said, Sean, we want to be the leader in what is happening with mental health and theater programs, which we've, we've heard a lot. We've heard a lot from people, mm-hmm. not specifically at Boston Conservatory, but we've heard a lot from listeners who have been traumatized and long-standing damage from the way they were treated and handled with yeah. their mental health and drama programs. Boston Conservatory is saying, we want to be at the forefront and lead on this. Will you come speak to our students about how to protect their mental health in the workplace? That's mm. huge. It is. That's one b- drama program, but that's how we start. That's right. Now, can we get a theater out there to say, can we get a paper mill or someone out there to say, okay, we heard the podcast and we're going to take the lead. We're going to... You know, we have recommendations. Mm-hmm. We have recommendations that every theater can put into place. Mm-hmm. So can we get one theater to say, we want to make sure we never have a good speed problem or we don't have a good speed PR problem. Be mm-hmm. cynical about it. I don't care <laughs> as long as we get it. But hopefully you're doing it because you care about your workers. You yeah. know, so um, I guess this is a long winded way to say we're not going to stop what we're doing. You yeah. know, we're going to keep building the momentum and change is going to come. Yeah. You can be part of that change. You can be in the front of it or you can mm-hmm. be behind the curve on this, right. but we're not going to stop talking about this and we're going to bring more stories. My story is just the beginning. My story is an example. It is not an anomaly. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is just the beginning. So the industry, you can be a leader in the forefront or you can be way behind the curve and I hope they'll make the right choice. Mm. I think you just answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is your most, what is, what has been the proudest moment throughout this entire podcasting journey? Well, yeah, I did just answer it. Right. (laughs) So it is look, you put a podcast out, you don't know if anyone's going to respond to it, you know, or would they respond to my story? Because I do come from a position of privilege and I recognize that. So, um, every interview I get to this moment and I get emotional because Mm -hmm. The people that write me every day are in pain Mm -hmm. and they're in pain 
because of the way they're being treated by their employers because of harmful practices. And it doesn't have to be that way. There is a better way to do it. Right. So that's my proudest moment. And these Mm -hmm. people, our listeners are learning. They said, I stood up for myself today. I spoke up for myself. I said, I listened to this podcast and I know I can speak up for myself. So please do not label me difficult for what Mm -hmm. I'm about to say. Or they left a job. They said, I told listeners, no job is worth your mental health. If I knew what I knew then, I would have left that job, you know? And I have to say, to hear from Boston Conservatory, that was a very proud moment. That's tangible change, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's part of, they, they want to... They're in a transition and they're wanting to change the way things have done. But to identify with the podcast and that we believe in what you're doing, come talk to our students about what you learned from your experience. Mm. That's that's a really proud moment. And I'm going to be um, very proud to, to be speaking there next week. Mm. I love that. So what is coming up next for the podcast? And do you have a vision for how this will wrap up in terms of when or if this saga with the good speed like actually I mean it's sort of ended maybe there's like a semicolon there but when it actually ends or are you going to morph this podcast into something more that deals with mental health and actor safety in the theater industry well the saga of what happened with the good speed has ended now that said I've always said this that there are any actions taken that will be become part of the story you mm-hmm. know no actions have been taken. We've been very careful about what we're doing here mm-hmm. to be truthful and to tell a very important story. So, so in terms of what it will morph into, we haven't announced a season three, but that's what we are looking at right now. And if there was a season three, I guess what I could say is that it would incorporate other people's stories mm-hmm. because you know, we've built a community. Yeah. And so we want to expand on that sense of community so that it's beyond beyond the Sean Hayden story. It's this person's story and this person's story and this person's story. And so we really want to create a movement going. Um, we have some discussions going on with Actors' Equity. They've, you know, high up. They've listened mm-hmm. to the podcast. So I'm I'm working with them on some potential initiatives. So I hope there'll be something that we can share with you, but I just want to say there's some very promising discussions. Mm. So that's the future. The future is advocacy. How do we get change and how do we keep this community going Mm -hmm. and share other people's stories and have actors and performing artists feel like there's a place they feel like they can belong when they've always felt like they've been the only one that's been going through a mental health crisis or being the victim of a harmful practice in an employer's place, workplace. Yeah. Mm. So you just mentioned being invited to go speak at Berkeley. Uh, What other doors has this podcast opened for you? Well, I never knew I would be a podcaster. (laughs) You know, I just made, I just made it up as I went along, you know, And then we, we've done two seasons and bonus episodes and trying to see if we can develop a, a, three, a, a third season with you know content that a listener could get every week. So that's really huge. I never dreamed I would be a mental health advocate. I never dreamed I would collapse on a floor, you know, mm-hmm. but it happened to me. And so 
you know, I, I, you know, if you told me five years ago, if you told me the month before I went to the good speed, this is what you're going to be doing in four years. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? And, but it's a, it's, it's a role that I've taken on and I'm happy to take on. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, taking pain and trying to create something positive and change and beauty from it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you heard, I'll let you hear the, the, the episode in yeah. advance. Yeah. yeah. You know, my husband, you know, we went through something very, very difficult. And yeah. so I, um, I'm grateful that that experience made us stronger. Mm. For a lot of people, it could have, you know, destroyed a relationship right. because of the harm that was done. You know, right. it's hard sometimes for a relationship to survive trauma like that. Right. And so I'm very grateful for that. Mm. You recently returned to performing. How has that been going? Well, it was, um, I, I went back to my acting class that mm-hmm. you heard about in Stage Combat. That was a wonderful experience. Um, my acting instructor had listened to every episode. Mm. Um, and so um, so that first day back, I stayed after class and he had an hour of questions. And it was really, that was really <laughs> great. And it was great just to get back and enjoy and respect the process of acting, yeah. which is what acting has always been for me. You know, I'm not famous. I'm not a celebrity. I always mm-hmm. wanted to be a working actor. And then around the same time, a company in Maryland that I worked at a few months before I went to the Good Speed in 2019 mm-hmm. asked me to come down and, and do a five-day rehearsal, two performance with an orchestra of um, they're playing our song. Do you know the show from the 70s with mm-hmm. Neil Simon? Um, and I went down and did that. And you know, it was really good to to check off that box because if you heard the podcast, which you did, it mm-hmm. seemed like there was not going to be a day where that would happen. Right. That I could get up in front of an audience. So to stand up and say, no, good speed, you did not take away that thing from me that I always love to do to get up in front of an audience and make them laugh and mm-hmm. to hopefully have them to tell a story. You know, that was very powerful. I don't know if this means I want to you know, keep performing in the theater. I, I mm-hmm. do want to keep um, studying acting with my instructor. So I haven't made any decisions about if I want to get back on the stage, but it was just a very important step for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we would call this exposure therapy in the world of therapy where you expose yourself and get back on the horse, so to say. Yeah. And so I can check that box off. And that's a very good feeling and a very nice personal position of power to feel. You know, mm. to to be hopefully back to that the skills and the empathy as an artist that I had before the good speed, they're still there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And everybody's rooting for you. We're like, yes. Oh. We, we want you to get back that. on stage because we know you love it so much. You know, and That's... it's so triumphant to to be able to bring yourself to put yourself out there again. That's so kind of you. And I wanted to kind of share that little journey. You know, I was never a big social media person before mm-hmm. Goodspeed, you know, and never even put us anything of myself singing, you know, it was like, but we all went through this story <laughs> together. Yeah. So it was important to try to share that with the social media followers and the listeners. And I really appreciate that, Melissa. That's very nice of you. Mm. 
Ugh. Well, I need to know about the uh, Southern cornbread stuffing that you mentioned to me offline. Sometimes we talk about. <laughs> I don't know why podcast. I mentioned that. I don't know why I mentioned that. It was like, what's one thing I'm really good at? And I, and I asked my husband <clears throat> because my life has been consumed with this podcast of mental health. And yeah. I was, he's like, it's about time to make your annual Southern cornbread stuffing, which we call dressing in the South. So okay, uh, uh, okay. So I'm a Southern boy. I was mm-hmm. raised in the Deep South, and so mm-hmm. you know, it's a dish I get to make once a year that my family clamors over because my adoptive <laughs> family, they're all, we would say Yankees. That's what we would say in the South. Oh, That's what we always read. Deep South. Okay. Now, I don't, I don't call people Yankees. I'm just saying, I'm saying you are I'm, one. <laughs> I am a Yankee and I am a proud Yankee. I am a proud Yankee. I, I am a proud New Yorker. Yeah. Um, we call it, I guess you call it stuffing in the North. We call it dressing in the South mm-hmm. and it's made with cornbread rather than like bread. Right. Um, and it's just amazing. Uh, make it, and it's got, it's got sausage in it, and it's got all the, you know, the holy trinity of like, um, you know, all the herb. The holy trinity is like onions, carrots, and celery, right? Okay. And then all the Thanksgiving herbs, which is sage, thyme, and rosemary. Mm-hmm. And um, you play the song while you're making it. <laughs> Parsley, n- sage, rosemary, and thyme. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid you were going to say Dixie. No, 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 no. Scarborough Fair. Yeah. I make it very, you're making it. Yeah. I take the, I take my Southern roots and present them in the, um, in the best possible light. So no, it's a dish I'm very proud of. And for some reason it's very addictive. Like people can't stop eating it. And I think there's something about cornbread as the basis of your yeah. your stuffing, your dressing that a lot of people haven't had. It's amazing. Oh my god! Like because sometimes with just the regular stuffing, it gets kind of mushy with you know the bread yep. cubes and everything. Mm-hmm. But yes. so you should try it sometime. It's amazing. Okay. I'll send you my recipe. Please, I love yeah. to cook. <laughs> yeah. And so you make it. You don't cook it in the bird. You you cook it in. A- oh no 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 no! You don't cook it in the bird because you can get that what. Salmonella, right? Something. Yeah. You, yeah. You don't want to do it in the bird. You cook it in a big, and you need like a really big casserole I, dish because okay. everyone's going to like want seconds and thirds. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Why do you only make it once a year then if everybody loves it? Well, this is a good question. I should make it more, right? <laughs> like, why do we wait? Because like Thanksgiving dinner is like the best meal of the year. Yeah. I mean, I think it is, but we only get to eat it Facts. once a year. Right. I think we should have like summer things, no, like spring Thanksgiving. And yeah. then I could make it twice a year. <laughs> right. That still might not like, be enough. Maybe at least Why quarterly. is it something that's so good? We only depri- we deprive ourselves of, or maybe we enjoy it more because it only happens once a year. Maybe there that makes it that. more special. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, send me the recipe and then, and then I'll let I you will. know how often I'm going to make it. <laughs> It's a lot of work, but it's really worth it. It's, yeah. Yeah. And it's better than the turkey. It will be better than your turkey. Like you could just sit oh and have God. a meal off of it. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Okay. All right. It's like lunchtime. So that's why we're talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> Back to theater. Um, Sean, this is 101 stage adaptations. Um, mm. What are some of your favorite stage adaptations? I'm going to guess it is not Billy Elliot, even though we love Elton John. <laughs> It's not Billy Elliot, and I don't think it's a great adaptation. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I know. You know, the movie, I think, is really good. 
and I think like I think the dad stuff is good in the show, mm-hmm. but I think the songs are just not good. And I I had the dad has two of the can I say this? I think dad has two of the worst songs in the show oh, and you have to sell no. the hell out of it. Ugh. Um, so yes, it does not. And then for other reasons, obviously, right. <laughs> I never want to come close to that show. Um, so like my favorite plays are not adaptations. So I do have to go to musicals, I guess. Okay. Um, I love the secret garden. Mm. I think that's a beautiful adaptation and the way it deals with grief. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, you know, it's so sexist now, isn't it? I oh. love Guys and Dolls <laughs> based upon, right? And I, I thought, you know, I, I wonder how does Guys and Dolls feel today? I don't know. Mm. So much has changed in the last three, four years, right? Right. Or can it just exist in its charm of a different era? But I always thought it was like, as far as construction, as perfect as a musical gets, you know? Yeah. Um, outside how do we view this from a me too standpoint today i don't know right it's got a lot of problems yeah actually the more i'm thinking about it it's got a lot of problems (laughs) i'm thinking about the havana scene oh no 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 okay let me retract problems in a lot of classic yeah there is okay so let me retract that i i think half of a show is a good adaptation is a show i did i think half of the bridges of madison county is a good adaptation of a good movie from a bad book and that's the Robert, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the Robert Francesca scenes. But I feel like everything outside of that is not, does not work. But the Robert Francesca scenes are so glorious mm-hmm. that it's worth it, you know? Mm. Um, and then for just f- pure fluff, Hairspray is just a perfect adaptation <laughs> of the John Waters film. Like, right. it's just, it's, it's two hours of pure joy and it just never yeah. stops. Right. I remember seeing it. It's like, it's just one hit after another and you don't stop smiling, mm-hmm. you know, and it's got a nice social message and right. um, body image positivity. Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty perfect show. Yeah. Hmm. I love it. Uh, what is something theater people can do to protect themselves from a stage combat situation or otherwise protect their mental health? Well, first of all, um, let's talk about from the macro side. Yeah. I think we all have to be advocates. Okay. I think we have to all really put public pressure on our theaters. And you've heard me ask, and we're going to start really pushing this in our social media. We need to start sending emails and, excuse me, we need to start sending emails and social media comments and just ask a simple question. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm just... I hear this podcast and I'm wondering, what are you doing to, pre- to protect the mental health of your actors? Mm-hmm. It's a very simple question. Yeah. And see if you get a response back because we have to start that dialogue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're going to be talking about some other ways that we can be advocates, but we really have to start reaching out directly because no one, these theaters have not had any reason to say what they're doing or even think about what they're doing. We right. need to let them know as artists and as patrons as supporters of the arts that we care. We don't want to watch a show and be worried about the actors standing on the stage or what's happening backstage. Right. You know? So that simple question, what are you doing to protect the mental health of your actors? Mm -hmm. And I would say if any of your listeners do that and you get a a response, we would love to hear that because if Mm -hmm. a theater is really doing things, we would like to applaud that and encourage it. Right. Um, I think in terms of protecting yourself, I think you've got to, 
I think we need to change the way we look at the industry. And I've, mm-hmm. and I've talked about this. I think we can love our art, but not love the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think I was very naive mm. <laughs> to think that people would do the right thing. Mm. And I think we have to go in recognizing that you may be working for people or an employer that does not care about you. Yeah. That sounds really harsh. But when you kind of go in with eyes open rather than with blinders on, mm-hmm. you know, that changes maybe what you would ask for. And then I think we have to document and demand. You know, I think you have to document when you feel like you're not safe in a theater. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to demand when you ask for things, you have to say, when will I hear back from you or follow up? Have mm-hmm. you taken action? I brought this concern to you. And I think there's a way to do that professionally. Yeah. Like are there theaters there, even if you ask for something, they're going to think you're you're difficult or something. And we've got to change that perception. That's a whole nother issue. Right. But I think we all have to be, a lot of people have asked me this. Does this mean we have to be like our own little investigators, lawyers? And I think the answer is yes. I think that's the lesson of my story, mm. you know, because you you are the least powerful person in that production, mm-hmm. usually as an actor, right. you know. So we really have to arm ourselves and really advocate for ourselves. And then on the mental health end, I think we have to really start looking at our mental health and not waiting for a crisis situation. We we talked with some of our mental health people mm-hmm. on the show that just maintenance and investing in your mental health so that when you have a Chad situation, as you heard in Sage Combat, or you have an employer where no one is listening to me, how would I handle that? What mm-hmm. tools would I have in place for that? I didn't have a therapist. I wasn't in crisis. I didn't have anyone to call. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think those are all things that a person can do individually. But I really want to see our community to really start to think about this because we do have power in numbers. You know, mm-hmm. I can assure you that if theaters start, we keep getting these emails, we keep getting these social comments. What's going on out there? Should we listen to that? Should we start making some changes? Yeah. You know, we haven't even cracked that surface yet. Mm. We're way down here. So, okay. It's coming though. Mm. Sean, my last theater question for you is if you found a magic lamp with Dionysus inside and he could grant you one theater wish, what would you wish for? Honestly, I would wish for that the theaters change the way they approach mental health. Mm. And I would want to see every theater do the following. I would want to see every theater start to employ a mental health professional on your production. They're called behavioral health consultants Mm -hmm. to guide the actors, but they could also direct an actor in crisis to resources. There was not one employed on my production, but we talked to many mental health people. If there had been one, they could have, they could have helped me. They could have directed me to resources, you know, when I was not being supported by my employer. I want to see every theater engage in sensitivity training and mental health crisis. I want to see every theater to change, burn the system down at the way you look at actors. We're not disposable. Mm-hmm. We're not garbage. Just because there's a lot of us right. doesn't mean you get to demean us as disposable pieces of something that walks on your stage. We're mm-hmm. human beings and you need to look at us as human beings and just start listening to us. Yeah. And then I would want to see theaters Really look at the way they're engaging in conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. Most of the mental health problems, the ones in stage combat, come out of cast conflicts. But the theaters 
are not investing in how do we resolve this? Mm-hmm. Is the attitude has been you got the job, now you're on the you're on your own, like it's the wild, wild west. No, you need to up your game. That is part of your job management to mm-hmm. give us a safe working environment. And that means supervising your employees and mediating and figuring out how you're going to handle these conflicts rather mm-hmm. than you you guys are on your own to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know. So I think those are all ways that are really good starts, which would which would dramatically change the industry. Yeah. You know, and we know it's possible. Five years ago, we did not have intimacy directors. Right. How many times do you hear about them now? All the time. It only happened because of crisis. It happened Mm -hmm. because of Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. So the question I would pose to everyone out there, are we really waiting for an extreme crisis to get people to take a step on mental health? And what is that crisis? Right. Does that mean, and I don't want this to be triggering, does that mean self-harm or someone taking their life or two people? How many people do you need? Do you need three people? What is that crisis like? Mm -hmm. So we have a chance to take these actions now. And like I said, there are things that every theater in the country could do in some fashion. Mm -hmm. Theaters had different budgets. My employer had a a budget of $12 million per year. Mm -hmm. Could have done all of these. Right. So- so that is my selfish uh, genie lamp, mm-hmm. um, but they're attainable. That's mm-hmm. what the great thing about the wish. Right. It's not fantasy. Right. It's attainable. Yeah. Yeah. Are there resources somewhere for people to get started, like uh, theater managers to get started with implementing these things? Well, um, you could listen to our podcast. We talk about it, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, and I think these are things that we're going to try to be in stage combat at the forefront of this conversation. We've already had these conversations in our talkbacks, mm-hmm. but in terms of behavioral health consultants, you know, Dr. Michelle Sherman out of Minneapolis was on the podcast. Mm-hmm. She did a, a psychological, a medical study advocating for the use of this. And, you know, this is something we're, we're trying to advocate with the union as well. Um, you, you know, these are, it comes down to basic HR skills. You know, so many theaters don't even have an HR department. Right. We, we had one quote unquote at the good speed, but where were the skills? This is the, is the question I would pose. Mm -hmm. So, you know, any company can look to their HR societies that will tell you how to manage employees better, how to listen to them, how to look at them as not just human capital, as human beings. Right. You know, we featured a podcast interview. We recreated it. It was a real one with Donalyn Hilton, the current mm-hmm. artistic director. And they referred to the interviewer, referred to her employees as human capital. Yeah. And she didn't even correct him. He was saying one thing that's similar with finance and theater is that it both involves human capital. No, we're not human capital. We are human beings. Yeah. So we really have to change the way. So all of these things that we're talking about are available to any employer if they want to do that. Now, where can we start pushing for that advocacy to the theaters, Mm -hmm. whether it's through other organizations, whether it's through actors equity, those are things we're trying, we're going to be working on. And, you know, so stay tuned. Hopefully we will, you know, um, have some more news on that. Yeah. I also wanted to footnote the, uh, when we reach out to companies on social media, the social media manager may not be the one with the answers. So don't yeah. go, go too hard on them. <laughs> yeah. And look, I've always said this too, um, with the communication for the theaters, be constructive, 
you know? Yeah. Do it in a professional, constructive way with the goal that we don't want punishment. We, we, I know a lot of people are angry about what happened in my story. Right. We want change and we're going to, we're, we're, we're more likely to get change when we're being constructive. So look, every email, all the, I mean, sorry, every website of every theater has the emails of all the artistic staff. Mm -hmm. That's a place to start, you know? Uh, you could go to the place that I worked at and you will see those emails there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's social media, but you are right. The social media comments are probably by a moderator. But if mm -hmm. there's enough of them, the, that person's going to say, we're getting a lot of these comments. Are you guys aware of this? Mm -hmm. So I think you have to do both, you know? Yeah. But again, let's do it in a constructive way. We want change. We don't want punishment. We want change. Yes. Sean, what is next for you and where can people listen to your podcast and learn more about you? Well, what is next for me is the advocacy, you know, uh, steps that we've been talking about. So I hope that I have more news about that. Um, uh, we, we're going to let you know what happens at Boston Conservatory. Hopefully that's actually going to be a podcast episode. Yes. Um, so that will be very cool to share that. We're going to use that and, and start encouraging other drama programs. Hey, Boston's doing this. Can we talk about this? Can, 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 do you want, can stage combat come and talk to you about what we think should be done? Um, what we're doing with the union, that's really what we're working on. So I'm having some great dialogues with Kate Schindel, who's the president um, so I'm very excited about that. We're, you know, trying really hard to make sure there's a, a season three and how we can do that. And it's financially viable, mm -hmm. but it would be something where there's a basket of content where people could get something every week. So mm -hmm. we are working on that. And, um, I think that's a pretty full plate. Um, mm -hmm. you can follow us. So most people follow us on Instagram that stage combat, the podcast, IG, so if you want to reach out to me, you know, if you, if you DM me, I reply to those personally. Sometimes the comments are replied to by our social media manager, mm -hmm. but I'm very, you know, responsive and interactive. If you just want to reach out to me and tell me that you're having a hard time in a situation or you've got some topics you'd like to hear about, or you're just, you want to vent a little bit, that's okay. That's what stage mm -hmm. combat is here for. So mm -hmm. So follow us at Stage Combat, the podcast IG, and then we'll have, um, you know, we have some more bonus episodes coming out, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then when we have an announcement, if we're able to do season three, we will let all of you know about that on mm. our social media. Can't wait. Sean, this was so fun. Thanks so much for coming on today. You are changing the industry and I look forward to following everything you do next. Well, I appreciate that so much. And, and I just want to say we all are going to change the industry. So right. the change comes from us mm. and from people like you, Melissa. Oh, thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of 101 Stage Adaptations. If you liked it, I hope you'll follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll be notified every time a new episode drops. 101 Stage Adaptations is produced by me, Melissa Schmitz, with the help of Hello Podcast Media. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.